be uh, working similarly uh, fast to what we were doing this morning. You may recall, if you were with us here this morning, that we needed quick minds and quick fingers to get our way around the Scriptures. And we'll be doing the same this evening. I will uh, be helping you out a little bit through uh, putting a number of the Bible verses and so on on the screen uh, behind me. So you will, uh, if, you, if your fingers just aren't quite fast enough, fear not, we'll, we'll get there. There will also be a chance to ask some questions at the end. So if something I say or a verse that I make reference to or a theme that I touch on causes you to have a few things sparking off in your minds or if there's some situation in your life that you just want to bring a bit closer to the Scriptures in some way, then please just store it up, mark it down, write it down if you need to. And there will be a chance, as I say, a little bit later on to, uh, to pit, uh, pit, pit your question against me and to tap the ocean of ignorance in my mind, which I'm happy to dispense to whoever would like to listen. Shall we pray as we approach God's Word? Heavenly Father, as we turn to a topic like suffering, we're very aware of the different things going on, not just in our lives, but in the lives of people we know. Some of us here this evening who've been through unimaginably awful experiences, others have had to sit by and look on as people we love have gone through such seasons in their life. Others still have experience like that largely ahead of them. Wherever we are, Father, would you draw our minds and our hearts to the Scriptures, wanting to learn, looking forward to what you will do in the new creation, but eager to make progress in how to think, and how to act in this life. I pray that you'd use our time this evening to help many this evening. Might your spirit be at work among us. Amen. Well, look, if you've had any exposure to Christian prosperity teaching, you'll likely be aware of a number of claims that are often made by teachers in that school about suffering and pain. One, uh, suffering for the Christian is not normal, or at least it shouldn't be. There's something wrong if a Christian believer experiences pain. He or she must be deficient in faith in some way because it's not part of the standard healthy Christian life. It's not normal. Two, suffering for the Christian is not of God. The Father would never inflict hardship on one of His dear children. He wants us to, to prosper in every way, not to suffer. If you or I suffer, you might put it down to any number of things, but it's not divine in origin. It's not of God. can't be. And three, which really follows on from two, suffering for the Christian is therefore not 
purposeful in any sense. God is not trying to accomplish something through putting us through hardship. Well, obviously not, because as we've seen in, in this version of biblical teaching, He wouldn't send it anyway, so obviously He can't be trying to accomplish anything by it. What I'm hoping to do this evening is not give a full-on critique of Christian prosperity teaching or anything like that. I'd, I'd very happily do that in another context. I do think that teaching is not just false but dangerous and dishonoring to Christ. But it's not my brief this evening. What I want to do is just bounce off those three common claims that I mentioned and see what the Bible does, in fact, have to say about suffering and our experience of it and God's role in it. So, first up, suffering is normal. Seems a trite thing to say, really. I'm almost embarrassed to say it, but it may be that some of us here this evening do need to be reminded of that given perhaps contact we've had with different forms of teaching elsewhere, suffering is normal for the Christian believer. In my family alone, we have alcoholism, divorce, clinical depression, eating disorders, chronic illness, sexual abuse, infertility, suicide. The list goes on. My nephew teenage nephew took one last trip with his friends at home before saying goodbye and heading off to university. On the drive home, their car slammed into an HGV and he was killed. Eighteen years old. Well, that's just my family. You could draw up your own catalogue of ills, I'm sure, as you look around yours and the people that you know. Suffering is all around us. And the people of God are not spared these hardships. Now, we heard from one person, Catherine, in that video we watched just a moment ago, and wasn't that extraordinary? Not just what she'd been through, but her attitude towards it. Extraordinary. But you can see it just without leaving the pages of the Scriptures. That reading we had from Psalm 88, I don't know if you've still got it in front of you, but do you see the depths to which this member of God's people had sunk? Now verse 1, he's, he's desperate, isn't he? Day and night I call to you. Verse 3, struggling to, to keep his head above water, I'm overwhelmed with troubles. Verse 4, he feels helpless. I'm like one without strength. Verse 6, he feels cut off, even from God. You've put me in the, in the lowest pit. Verse 8, he feels utterly alone. You've, you've taken from me my closest friends. Still in verse 8, feels trapped. I'm confined and cannot escape. And on he goes until that final, so telling comment at the very end of verse 18, darkness is my closest friend. 
It's a bleak picture, isn't it? But if you're familiar with the Psalms at all, you'll know that these kind of themes permeate the experiences of God's people that are captured for us in this book of Psalms. And in case you expect things to change instantly for God's people with the coming of the Messiah, well, think again. I mean, look at the Apostle Paul. Here's a, here's a man who's sold out in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. And what was his experience? He had to endure personal pain, that thorn in the flesh that he pleaded with God repeatedly to take away, but God left him with it. He had to endure relational pain, the disagreements, the slights, the reputational damage that forced him onto the back foot so often when you read the letters that he wrote. And of course, he had to endure physical hardship too. Remember that reflection of his in 2 Corinthians chapter 11? Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Here in the New Testament, we have a believer I believe we know more, more about than anybody else in that book. And his life is full of pain. But maybe it's just a result of his very specific ministry. Maybe he's unusual. Maybe ordinary believers might expect to be different, do you think? What he doesn't, that's for sure. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone. And the implication, of course, being that if some Christian believer somewhere is not having a hard time of it on any front, then, well, there's a question about how deliberate and single-minded they're being in their discipleship. Perhaps there's something deficient about their commitment to living for Christ. In other words, it's the very opposite of what those prosperity teachers routinely say. Well, they may say suffering is not what we should expect. Jesus says the opposite. Luke 9 verse 23, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Take up their cross daily and follow me. Suffering is normal. It's to be expected. I hope for most of us that doesn't really need saying, but I'm aware of how beguiling the make-believe world of prosperity teaching can be. I can't believe that Edinburgh is off the map somehow in this department. Now, please don't be misled. If, if you personally feel like you're experiencing the sharper edges of life just at the moment, you're not some kind of anomaly. You're not weird. This is just normal, even for God's people. Perhaps especially for God's people. In fact, if there's anyone around you who doesn't feel like they've experienced much hardship, well, 
I'd venture to say they're either deluded or just young. Let's move on to the second thing we need to recognize about suffering. And this is really the main thing I want to focus on tonight. It's this. Suffering, our suffering, is not a God-free zone. Our suffering is not a God-free zone. Now, I'm picking up on language here um, that I used this morning. I don't know if you were here with us this morning. Uh, Just help me out for a minute. Put your hands up if you were actually here this morning. The vast majority, but not everybody. Okay. Well, look, I, I was talking about how most Christians are generally very happy to talk about God as being in sovereign control of the world, at least if we keep it general. But when you drill down into the, to the detail, you find actually, well, we want to back off a bit. Wait, wait, wait. You say, you're saying God's in control of that? The way I put it was we want to set up total exclusion zones for the activity of God, and we want to do that in two particular areas. One is the human will. That's what we were thinking about this morning. When you talk about God being at work in the human will, He can feel demeaning, even dehumanizing, as though the choices I make from day to day are not actually real. They're not mine. As I say, I tried to bring the Word of God to bear on that question this morning, so I won't repeat myself now. But I did say there was this second exclusion zone that many Christians want to set up for God, and that is the exclusion zone of our suffering. Let me ask you a question. How do you like your God? How do you like your God? Do you... uh, like him coming to you with love or hate? Do you like him offering rescue or trouble? Do you like him serving up healing or harm? I, I take it we'd all answer this question the same way, wouldn't we? we? We like our Heavenly Father coming to us with love and, and with rescue and with healing, do we not? And wonderfully, the Bible teaches that is exactly the God that we have and the way that He shows Himself to us. Praise Him for that. But it's not quite as straightforward as that, is it? Sometimes real love shows itself in the form of tough love. You ask any parent, decisions that I make for my children for their long-term good may produce tears in the short term. Mostly, it seems, just at the moment when there are decisions involving screens or their time when they're allowed to be on their screens. And occasionally, a major rescue involves some degree of pain in the short term. You haul somebody out of the pit that they've fallen into, and they might suffer rope burn on the way out. And it's certainly true that the people we look to for healing put us, put us through some pretty testing experiences on the way. Yucky medicines, terrifying needles, sharp scalpels, and the like. I speak as one whose wife and mother have both been on the operating table in the last week. 
In other words, the journey to whatever destination we want to reach is often littered with sharp, painful stones underfoot. And that's true of the journey God takes us on towards the new creation. In these early days of the journey, these first few decades, shall we say, our earthly life, God knowingly takes us very often on a painful route. And so we come back to that point that our suffering is not a God-free zone. The problem is we don't like the idea of associating pain with God, do we? As I say, we, we like our God simply loving and rescuing and healing. Pain does not seem to sit well with those things. seems to us it makes God into a monster, and, and that can't be. And so what do we do? We try anything we can find, any method we can make use of, to let God off the hook for our pain. For example, we'll rethink the way that he runs the world in general. This morning I talked about the cruise control God, by which I mean that there's this idea we settle for of God much of the time, maybe even most of the time, just letting the world do its own thing and only intervening from time to time when there's a particular uh, pain or, or hardship that comes our way, well, that clearly was not on his watch. That's when it was on automatic. That, that wasn't him. It was, it was someone else, but it wasn't God. Or else we'll talk of God's relationship to suffering in, in, in a different way to other things. We'll happily say God sent his blessings or initiated this positive event or, or gave us that opportunity. But if it's a hard experience, something painful, the most we'll say is that God allowed it. He wasn't actually involved. He just didn't intervene to stop it. Or if even that seems to leave an idea of God that we can't stomach, then we take the ultimate step and remove him from the picture altogether. That is, we conceive of him as really not actually personally involved in the world at all. He flicked that first domino, perhaps, got the whole thing going, but since then things have just continued on without any involvement of his at all. He might as well be kicking back watching the shopping network channel or whatever it is for all we know. So obviously he can't be responsible for the pain. He hasn't got his hands anywhere near the wheel. You see what we're doing here in these approaches? We're shrinking God down, aren't we? Whether we're making him into that part-time God of the cruise control or the passive God who just allows things or the perfunctory God who just has only a passing contact with the world. Whatever way we do it, we are downsizing him. And we do this, why? Because we feel bound to let God off the hook for all the suffering. Whether it's suffering in our own life or in the life of someone we know or just more generally out there in the world. We feel like if we, if we pin it on him, it turns him into, I don't know, someone we would rather not know. 
So as I say, we need to let him off the hook. But that begs a question, doesn't it? Does God want to be let off the hook? Let me read you some verses from the Scriptures which suggest that, well, maybe he doesn't. Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Now, the answer he's driving at clearly is, well, yes, whatever our simplistic idea of God might be, however we like our God to come to us, the truth is that in the short term of our earthly lives, both good and bad, pleasant things and painful things come from God. Isaiah 45, verse 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Here is God speaking about himself, and he's sounding like he's just as responsible for the disastrous things as he is for comfort, happiness. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other. Here, God is telling us specifically how we should think about our circumstances and where they come from. If, they, if we're doing well, it's from God. If we're having a complete shocker of a day or a week or a year or a life, it's just as much from God. Now, I know this is eyebrow-raising stuff, isn't it? It may be hard to swallow for, for many of us. Uh, we tend to thank God for the good things and because he was obviously behind them. But when life gets hard, we, we, we talk and we, we act as though, well, God, we're looking the other way at that point. Now, looking at the weight of the Bible's data as a whole, I do think it's fair to say that God stands behind painful things and uh, non-painful things, joyful things in a slightly different way. It's not entirely symmetrical, but he still stands behind them, all of them. There's no exceptions. But is that right? Can there really be no exceptions? What about something that's really awful? What about birth defects? very current question for us as a church in Southampton at the moment. We've had a baby born into our church community with uh, severe chromosomal disorder, awful lot of things going on, lots and lots of things uh, ahead of that little baby if he survives. It's really quite serious issues. What does Exodus 4 verse 11 say? Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute? or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Well, you have to remember then, it's, this is how God decided it would be. Hard as that may be for us to work through. 
What about somebody's financial woes? I imagine there's a number of people in this room in a crowd this size for whom things are not all hunky-dory on the finance front. 1 Samuel 2 verse 7, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. What about infertility? Such a hard thing, isn't it? When a couple longs to have a baby and is unable to, maybe you know people in that position, maybe that's your own experience. Where does it come from? Well, remember Hannah. 1 Samuel 1 verse 5, the Lord had closed her womb. It was God's decision that, well, for the time being at least, she wouldn't have that baby. What about things that have been done to us by other people? In other words, if someone is nasty to me or, or hits me or whatever they do, surely that's just a matter of me and them, isn't it? God's not part of that picture, surely, right? Wrong. Isaiah 19 verse 2, And I, the Lord, will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight each against each other. Just one example of many we could turn to, showing even when it's other people causing us grief. Ultimately, it's God behind it. What about storms and, and downpours, like that horrendous situation we've seen in Mozambique, that whole area recently. Job 37 verse 11 he, the Lord, loads the thick cloud with moisture. The, the clouds scatter His lightning. They turn around and around by His guidance to accomplish all that He commands on the face of the habitable world. Well, we could go on, but you, you get the point. As we read the Bible, we just don't find God washing His hands of the troubles of the world. He doesn't say, not my fault. Quite the reverse, he, he takes responsibility. In fact, he, he positively invites us to pin it all on him. Our suffering is not a God-free zone. Now, I know that begs some pretty big questions like, why? Oh, we'll get onto that in a, in a moment. But can I just say first, when you, when you kind of think about it, it's actually quite a relief to know that God stands behind our pain, isn't it? Because the alternative truly is awful. The alternative is that suffering really is as random and meaningless as the atheist says it is. But if it's God who stands behind our pain, well then, He must have a purpose for it, and a good purpose at that. It's not out of His control. It's not something that takes Him by surprise and derails His plans. And so the Christian takes much comfort in knowing that even the most terrible suffering is still under the control of our sovereign God. That said, it would be good to know why, wouldn't it? 
I mean, for some of us, all this may be just blowing apart the view of God that we've had before now. How can we accept the idea of a God who in any way causes pain? These are, these are real people's lives he's messing with. What possible good could a loving and holy God be driven by in such a way as to want to inflict misery on those he's made in his own image? Well, that uh, question brings us on to my third point, which is this. Not only is suffering normal and from God, it is also purposeful. Suffering is purposeful. God knows what he's doing and why he's doing it. And when he ushers us along that road littered with those sharp stones underfoot, he has a reason for it. And wonderfully, to some extent, he shows us his hand. Not in detail, not in the form of some custom-made, fully personalized commentary on what he's doing in your particular circumstances, but he does give us something. It starts by giving us a baseline assurance that in all things, he is working for the good of those who love him. Romans 8, verse 28. That's a priceless encouragement in itself. It's certainly been a great comfort to generations of Christian people before us. But actually, he goes further than that. There are a number of purposes God is on record for having in mind when he has subjected his people to that tough love. I'm going to spend the rest of our time this evening just mentioning what those purposes are. First, he uses pain to make us more like Jesus. He uses pain to make us more like Jesus. Our Father has a very clearly stated objective for his children And that is to conform us to the image of Christ. That's what he wants. That's where he's aiming. And he'll use everything at his disposal to achieve that aim. His his word, the example of fellow Christians around us, prayer, material blessings, encouragements, rebukes of others, and so on. But also pain. Christian people have always found that the seasons they grew in their discipleship the most were actually not the easy times, but the hard times. I've certainly found that in my experience, but it's not just me. That experience of pain is another, perhaps the most effective tool used by God to make his children more like his son Jesus. For example, God uses pain to grow our humility. So many of us have that tendency to big ourselves up, don't we? Sometimes the only thing that will bring us down to size is real personal suffering. Oh, we were thinking earlier about that thorn in the flesh that the Apostle Paul had to endure. We we don't know the details. It seems to him some kind of chronic illness or disability. What's striking 
is that he knows why he has it. In 2 Corinthians is Paul's most personal and self-revealing letter. It's where we find him wearing his heart on his sleeve more than anywhere else, and he's pretty candid about how hard life has been. Remember what the point of his pain was? A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. Why? To keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should, be, it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Very striking, isn't it? But that, that danger of conceit growing in Paul, of him getting too big for his boots, that was something that God simply had to act on. And it may be the reality for some of us. We may need the experience of suffering to avoid becoming too full of ourselves. To remember to keep looking to Him for strength. To be useful in His working. To keep seeing God for the mind-blowing, powerful God that He is. Then again, God also uses pain to grow our holiness. I'm sure you've heard the story of Michelangelo's famous sculpture of David. The raw material he started with was not promising. That block of marble from which he worked had already been rejected by Donatello. Just too many imperfections. But Michelangelo looked at it and saw what he could make of it. And so he set to work For two years, he hammered and chipped away with that chisel of his. And on the 25th of January, 1504, the the veil was dropped to reveal a sculpture that would take the breath away from millions of viewers. But it could not have been done without the sharp cutting edge of that chisel. Most of us are are aware of failings in our lives, aren't we? But I'm pretty sure none of us take them as seriously as we should. And so we need our Heavenly Father to help us to act on them. The believers to whom the letter of Hebrews was written had been through a horrendous time of persecution, all sorts of things that they'd been suffering, and it would be very, very easy for them to point the finger of blame at their persecutors, those who are giving them such a hard time. But the writer points his finger in a different direction. Hebrews chapter 12, we read, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share 
in his holiness. When life is painful, consider it may be God sculpting us into the works of art that he plans to make of us. Suffering is God's way of refining us, making us more like Jesus. And again, suffering can be God's way of growing us in hope. Uh, Twenty years ago, I was just starting work uh, alongside a chap called Paul Rees, if you've come across him, as an itinerant evangelist in Sydney, Australia. And someone said to me as we got to work there, he said, uh, the problem you'll find here is everybody thinks they're already in heaven. It's kind of true. That's what they do think in Sydney, Australia. African slaves in the cotton fields of the American South did not need to be reminded, though, that they weren't in heaven. In fact, they coped with their circumstances by reminding each other of future deliverance in the songs that they sang, swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home, and so on. And in a sense, the Bible encourages us to take a leaf out of their book. At 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, and Paul says this, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. You see how Paul's present suffering actually increased his excitement about what is to come? It may be like that for us. It may take real pain in our lives or seeing it in the lives of those we know and love to get us starting to focus, and I mean really focus, on future glory. Heaven can't just be a tag-on belief for us. That's not what heaven is. It doesn't work like that. It needs to fill our horizons and shape our lives. Well, there's one more thing that suffering does for us. It makes us more like Jesus. It's an opportunity to grow in our humility, our holiness, and our hope. A second purpose God may have in mind, though, is simply Drawing people to Jesus. You may have heard that C.S. Lewis quote about suffering. God whispers in our pleasures, you know it. He speaks to us in our conscience. But he shouts to us in our pain. Pain, he said, is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I think that's the experience of lots of people, actually. It takes things going wrong in their lives. It takes the rug being pulled out from under their feet to make them realize their need for a Savior. 
Well, that may well be the testimony of some of us here this evening. That's what brought us to start thinking afresh about spiritual issues, maybe how you came to Christ. But actually, if you follow the contours of the Bible, you quickly realize there's more to say than that. You can go in more deeply. For one thing, God uses suffering to embolden the tellers of the gospel, the speakers of the gospel. That is, to motivate people like you and me to get on and share the good news. That's apparently what happened in Philippi when Paul was there in prison. Philippians 1 verse 14, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. In other words, Paul's suffering in prison seems to have been a, a spur to the evangelism of his fellow believers. I guess maybe they saw him in chains and thought, golly, I'm, I'm not really putting my weight, am I? Maybe I should start taking this evangelism thing more seriously or, or something like that. I don't know about you, but I certainly find when I contemplate those great ones of the past, for example, who were martyred for refusing to deny their faith. And I realize how little discomfort I endure for the gospel. I find myself motivated. I find a spur to pluck up courage and speak all the more. Then again, suffering creates opportunities for the gospel. I suppose the, the classic example of that is after the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr. The authorities decide to, to stamp out the entire Christian movement in Jerusalem once and for all. Acts 8 verse 1, there arose on that day a, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And you might think as you read that, well, that's that for the Christian movement. Kaput, that's, that's gone, dead and buried. Except that's not what happened, in fact. Because in God's purposes, relocating those Christians meant multiplying the places where the gospel could be proclaimed. So, verse 4 of Acts 8, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. I wonder how many times something like that has happened, been repeated throughout Christian history on all sorts of scales. Your friend Joe gets sick and goes to hospital, starts chatting to the person in the next bed. That person is converted and 12 years later becomes a missionary to some new people group somewhere in the world. Any, t any number of times something like that must have happened, mustn't it? And maybe something like that might happen through your suffering when it comes to you, if it hasn't already. And then again, God uses suffering to enable people to hear and respond to the gospel. I don't know if you reflected on this, but there's a very interesting comment that uh, the Apostle Paul makes in Colossians chapter 1. Now I rejoice in my sufferings 
for your sake, he says. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. What can he mean? Is he saying Christ didn't quite finish the job? He didn't do enough to accomplish salvation and I've got to finish it off somehow? Well, no, not at all. Christ's suffering was complete and, and, and perfect. He did everything that was needed to achieve our salvation. What Paul does is to throw himself into the hard and dangerous work of bringing news of that salvation to people in such a way that they can respond to it. You see, even after the cross, there was a suffering that needed to happen so that people could hear and respond to the gospel. So once again, you see, God is using suffering to advance his gospel. And he's recognizing that that may well be what God is intending when we go through hard times. Do recognize that. It can be a wonderful comfort. We're not suffering for nothing. The day when we turn up to the pearly gates, there may well be somebody there, maybe many people there, who come up to us and say, Thank you. Thank you for responding as you did to what you faced for my sake. Had we not faced the pain we faced, well, humanly speaking at least, they would not be in the kingdom. And finally, can't finish without recognizing that God uses suffering for a third and very wonderful purpose to achieve glory for his son, the Lord Jesus. See, were it not for the possibility of suffering in the world, well, there would be no crucifixions, would there? And therefore, there would be no cross of Christ. And if there were no cross of Christ, then, well, if Jesus were not humiliated and, and beaten and, and crucified, then apart from anything else, that scene of Revelation chapter 5 could never happen. There they are, the, the 24 elders falling down before the Lamb, and here are their words. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a, a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is Jesus the King? No, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
Suffering has the dignity of being the catalyst of greater glory going to our great Savior. God knows what He's doing with our suffering. Our suffering is purposeful. We may not know specifically what He's doing when when life gets hard for us or the people that we love, but there is a divine mind behind it. Well, we started, didn't we, by thinking about the the claims of the prosperity teachers. As as we've flipped around the Bible this evening, I hope at the very least you can appreciate how foolish those claims seem in the light of God's actual revelation to us. Is it something strange, abnormal? No. Is suffering somehow... Something that stands apart from God? Far from it. Is suffering meaningless? Well, not if you believe the Bible. If you're hurting, and hurting badly, know that it won't last forever. The sovereign God knows what He's doing. He's leading us along the road to, to love and to rescue, and to healing. He's leading us along the road to His own presence. Even if those stones under our feet are sharp and painful. 